a pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, billions more for the state budget, plus a wind and solar siting bill dies a loud death, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending April 16th, 2021. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, the Indiana Department of Health announced it paused use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine after national guidance to do so. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Lauren Chapman reports the state also worked to supply vaccination sites with other vaccines. After six of the 6.8 million people who've received a Johnson & Johnson vaccine developed a rare and severe type of blood clot, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have recommended pausing use of the vaccine. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway was originally supposed to conduct mass vaccination clinics through Sunday with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Officials said they have supplied IMS with Moderna two-step vaccines and are working to supply other vaccine sites as well. Health officials encourage Hoosiers to still get a vaccine, especially because of the increase of cases and hospitalizations from COVID-19 variants. Was this too cautious a move from the FDA? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers. And Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. I want to just say at the top of the show that all of our thoughts and our healing certainly goes out to those whose lives are forever changed by what happened today at FedEx here in Indianapolis. We're thinking about all of you. But on the topic, Mike O'Brien, does pausing the vaccine's use for such a small number of incidents do more damage than it helps? I guess we'll, we'll find out. My, my instinct is that for people that were already... Um, inclined to not get a, already suspicious of a vaccine. They'll point to this as evidence that, see, we told you. Um, there's, so there's going to be some of that. Um, I think if you're inclined to get a, a vaccine, you're just going to get a different one now. Um, you're going to look at one of the, one of the other options um, and just kind of wait and see on the, on the Johnson & Johnson. It's so, such a small number of people. I'm not qualified to determine <laughs> to decide or second-guess the FDA. Uh, I'll say a lot of things on this show, but that's not one of them. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm an expert in very little. Um, so it, we'll find out. I think it, the abundance of caution may be, it may be smart um, to the extent that it deters people that may, be, may have been on the fence. Uh, you know, we may see people just kind of hold off a little bit longer than they might have otherwise. Um, but, I mean, got to listen to the experts, I guess, in this situation and others. We haven't really seen a, a huge indication of, of the effect of vaccine hesitancy in Indiana yet. Um, the numbers keep going. Well, the numbers keep going up. Yes, they've started to slow in terms of where they're yeah, going we're up. Sixth worst in the country. Um, That's... But but is this going to? Obviously, the state did the only thing it could here. Yeah. But no is this is this going to hurt more than it helps? I, I don't think so. I think Mike is right. I think the problem is the hesitancy on the part of people. This it seems to me ought to give some. Um, some faith to the people who have doubts that government will look out and make certain that it's safe. But every time you have a vaccine, there's a certain very tiny percentage of people that are going to be negatively impacted. They know that going in. And we don't have any indication that this is any higher than for polio or tetanus or anything else that we take routinely. 
Um, they're going to try to see if there's a common denominator, whether it's the use of some kind of birth control or something else that triggers this. I, I think they need a little time to figure that out, and then they can say if you're a woman between these two ages and you're taking this birth control or whatever it is, try another vaccine. I, I think that should give people more faith in it. But Mike's right. The, the problem is that people don't feel a sense of responsibility to take it. They don't feel that they need to get to that herd immunity. They don't have confidence in the government or the medical system. And that's really unfortunate because if we don't have that, we're never going to get this virus under control. Is it helped here in terms of potential impact of this pause, which is still ongoing? Hopefully it'll be ending next week potentially. But is it helped that Johnson & Johnson is by far the least common of the three vaccines, at least in this country? Yeah, I mean, Indiana had only given out like 128,000 of them compared to, you know, several million of the Moderna and, and Pfizer. So a, a lot of people are easily switching over to the two-dose. There's probably a very small amount of Hoosiers who really wanted the single shot, one and done, and so maybe they decided no. Um, I did notice IMS today opened up saying anyone can come in without an appointment this weekend. So they clearly do have some openings, whether that's partially because people wanted J&J or partially because people are just a little nervous about it. You know, who knows? Yeah, when we see that announcement at IMS, uh, immediately your mind goes to, oh boy, did they not have enough people to fill appointments? And what does that say about our ability to get enough of the population vaccinated. Are we starting to see the first signs of vaccine hesitancy making a real impact in us getting a handle around this, this virus? I think that is the case. And if you look at other states where uh, they may be a little bit further down the pike, well, we're seeing that trend emerge. You're seeing uh, in many states the supply is outpacing demand. Uh, which would have been unimaginable probably, uh, you know, a few months ago when, when people were just clamoring to get these uh, vaccines. So it's, uh, and we're running up against probably a certain percentage of the population that simply uh, does not want to get it. You know, to, I would say that the FDA probably is in a competition uh, forever, a perpetual contest where it can only lose. It can never win. Uh, you know, it's either too aggressive in policing medications, in which case you see lawmakers across the country and the public say, look at this, you know, Byzantine structure, the uh, regulatory climate that drugs, promising drugs have to go through before they can help people. And you see states enacting laws, sort of the last resort type bills where you the can write to try, write to try uh, bills. And then other instance, you know, they're, they're running roughshod over the public safety in, an in, in the interest of getting people vaccinated. If that were the case, they probably would not have... Uh, pulled the plug on the, the Johnson & Johnson facility in Baltimore that was creating one of the ingredients for this medication, which was sort of the first strike. I think the New York Times said that was 15, 18 million doses out of the mix right yeah. there. So I don't think anybody can say that the FDA is trying to uh, shove this down anyone's throat or, or in their arms, as the case may be. All right. Well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, does the Johnson & Johnson vaccine pause make you more hesitant to get a COVID-19 vaccination? A, yes, or B, no. Last week's question, should the state hold back some of the new federal COVID-19 relief dollars for future needs? Just 35% say yes, 65% of you say no. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. 
Indiana lawmakers will have about $2 billion more to use in the new state budget after an updated projection of state tax revenues was unveiled this week. Legislative leaders say the big increase in future state tax dollars stems from a few factors. More job stability, higher consumer confidence, a successful vaccine rollout, and an influx of federal COVID-19 relief. And Senate President Pro Tem Roderick Bray says lawmakers must now decide how to spend the additional money. Uh, This is not a time for us to grow government, but rather a time to make investments that can eliminate debt, pay down pension obligations to free up money that the state can use in the future. Education advocates are already among the loudest voices calling for increased funding with the new money. Bray and House Speaker Todd Houston say education remains their top budget priority. We have confidence that if we put more dollars towards uh, K-12, that those dollars, like they did in 2019, will get in the hands of teachers. Lawmakers are aiming to finalize the new state budget by the end of next week. And Delaney, how would you spend this money? Oh, I think that's easy. We need to bring teacher salaries up to where they need to be. You know, it's what, three, $300 million first year, $500 million, and by the third year, we'd be where we ought to be in comparison to other states. The second thing I do is not tax the unemployment benefits with state ta- income tax. I think they are trying to do well, that. Well, they took that out of the Senate bill. They did take it out of the Senate bill. It's not currently in a bill, so they were ho- absolutely willing to conform the corporate tax structure when the federal government cut corporate tax, but they don't want to do it for the poor people who were unemployed during COVID in 2020. That's unacceptable. Those two things, I think, are musts. And after that, we can start looking at some of the infrastructure needs that are here and, and need to be addressed. Michael Bryan, how would you spend this money? Well, what I think, and I think Senator Ryan Mishler is, pro- is focused on this more vocally, publicly than anybody else, and asking, why is it this high? It's an obscenely large difference between the December forecast and the April forecast. And if you look, in the, if you look at the percent increase year over year, or the percent increase over the December forecast, um, it's driven in large part by sales tax, driven, driven large part by individual income, driven in large part by corporate income. Um, those are all things that you'd expect to go up if, you, if the federal government, as they did, flooded the economy with money. Um, so they were going to proceed with caution. They should do those things. I do think they should do something on teacher compensation. I've always thought that they should just finance the takeover of it and just do it all in the budget and just take it away from school boards since they get the political heat for it anyway. Why not just do it yourself, like property taxes? Um, back in 2008, but uh, this, is, this is becoming an obscene amount of money that the state government has to, has to try to manage, which is $7 billion. And understanding why the state's tax receipts are going to go up that big is an important question to understand because it, it, if you set how you spend this money now depends on how you're able to manage it if it's not true, one, and if it's not sustainable, two, because you haven't, because you're taxing unemployment benefits and, and you've had this enhanced unemployment um, benefit through through stimulus or you flooded people with stimulus checks who large a large number of whom i'd say the majority of whom didn't need it and went and spent it and now that's why driving your sales tax number or you put a moratorium on evictions now you have people not paying rent and putting more money into the into the retail economy so i think ryan Mishler's right in others it's not just him but he's been most most vocal about it is why is it why is it that number and it's got it in form and instruct how you spend it now, what you decide to spend it on, in case, again, it's not true or it it's not sustainable. Well, what if it is? Well, then we'll know the that. The state's not supposed then we'll know to be that. a bank. 
we'll, we'll know that. But I, it, it I can manage to about hold back a lot of that money. But uh, to that end, when we heard um, the national forecaster who preceded the revenue forecast, and you talked about what's sort of baked into this revenue forecast, it doesn't include this potential infrastructure package that President Biden is pushing. If that also happens, this could even be bigger than we think. Right? Happy days are here again. Sure. Sound up. Strike up. Chicken the in ba- every pot. Yeah. Strike up the. Ba- two chickens. Two chickens um, in every pot. You know, it. Let's start by saying having a lot of money is better than having <laughs> right. no money or not enough. Let's say that. Sure. But in an odd, bizarro kind of way, this does create a lot of problems for the budget architects and for lawmakers because before. At the, at the height of the pandemic, everybody's expectations were we're going to try to eke by. We've been, we've, you know, marshaled our reserves. We've been very frugal. We're going to barely get through this, but we'll be okay. And so people who normally would line up at the budgetary trough to, to get their, their allotment uh, have sort of been on the sidelines. Now, open the floodgates. Everybody uh, comes through. Uh, so that's, that's a, a bit of a, a dynamic. And the other thing that changes is the framework of the discussion, and we and Mike just talked about this before. The Republicans were saying when it was just federal stimulus dollars of one kind or another, you know, one-time dollars. We can't really build this into the budget. Can't build it into the budget. Now, no, presuming this, budget. presuming this is, I mean, this Ongoing is state, this revenue, is state right. revenue uh, for whatever reason. This is state revenue, so it does change. The old talking points no longer work. I guess is what you said. What I'm trying to say. Uh, I said jokingly to Senator Mishler yesterday as we were leaving. I said a lot harder to say no to folks, and he jokingly said, "Watch me." But, I mean, their jobs did get a little harder over the next week. It did get harder because when Democrats would bring amendments, you know, in the past recent weeks and they'd say we need to restore food bank money or we need to restore money to our choice program, every time Senator Mishler and Chairman Brown would get up and say, look, we we barely – have a structural balance in the first year. We just can't. If we restored all those cuts, it would be, you know, $270 million. Well, guess what? They got $270 million. And a lot more than so, that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd, be, that'd be between now and July. The 20, yeah. this, the 2020 yeah. forecast yeah. went up yeah. in the next four months. So they do have way. money to, you know, give more than inflation to, to K-12. Education and in, the, year, in yeah. the past, you know, it was hard to argue the whole, t- they, you know, schools should be giving more raises when they weren't even getting an inflationary increase. So hopefully they will at least bump that up for them. And, they, and, and everybody said yesterday uh, their top budget priority is K-12 education, and it will remain K-12 education when they look at this new money. Well, a controversial bill that aimed to standardize where wind and solar farms could be located in the state was withdrawn in the Senate this week. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Rebecca Thiel reports, despite a lot of changes to the bill, Sponsors didn't feel they could get the votes needed to pass it. The idea was to make it easier for renewable energy companies to invest in Indiana. Right now, the state is a patchwork of different local ordinances. Some counties have banned wind farms altogether. But when county leaders opposed the bill, it was changed so that those who had more restrictive ordinances could keep them. Lawmakers also offered counties the option to have special renewable energy districts. One of the bill's sponsors, Republican Senator Mark Messmer, expressed his frustration that lawmakers still couldn't agree on the bill before withdrawing it. And it's like having a hostage crisis negotiation going along. You give the the captor everything they want, and then they shoot the person at at the end of the ordeal anyway. However, a bill that creates a standard for how wind and solar farms are taxed did pass the Senate. Nikki Kelly, are you surprised that this bill had such a hard time in the legislature? Not 
terribly surprised in that local officials have been pushing back this year, especially on a number of bills that were coming through controlling, you know, home rule and local power. So they definitely saw that as one that they wanted to work against. And, and for them, you know, when they're speaking to their local legislators, many of whom came up in local government, you know, they do really, you know, have a say on that. It, although I understand Senator Messmer's, you know, frustration as well, the bill was markedly different than it was in the House, but they still didn't like one specific provision that basically said you can have as harsh rules as you want, but only if you get them passed by July 1, and after that, you're stuck with the state standards. Uh, Senator Mesmer, um, as he was wrapping up, said, you know, I've heard other people say, well, we'll, we'll try again next year, and his answer was, good luck. I'd love to see it. I don't think he's going to be tackling this again. Um, at least he's not eager to right now. Is he, does this bill have better luck in the future? Well, the market, I think, forces the issue. Renewables are growing and growing and growing as fossil fuels recede. So I think uh, it's bound to come up again simply because of issues that are bigger than, than the sentiments of the, of the General Assembly or future uh, General Assemblies. You know, this is a mixture, uh, kind of the perfect storm, if you, at least in the eyes of supporters, of a certain group who think that that uh, renewables are some kind of communist plot, you know, that they're, that they're bad things happen when you have, see wind turbines and when you see uh, solar panels, just bad things. But that's a, that's a small group. That alone would not torpedo uh, the bill. But the issue, as Nikki suggests, is this concern about home rule or local control, which uh, we've discussed on this program no. earlier in the year. I mean, it seemed to be every bill, every other bill was about we're going to take over what has been ceded yeah. to the to locals in the past. And I think there was a backlash, a pushback, so now there's a heightened sensitivity. Those two things came together and tanked it this year, but I think it will be back. Well, to, to that very point then, Mike, if, if, for instance, next session, there aren't nearly as many bills that have to do with taking over local control, does this, outside of that climate, have a better chance, or is this issue just really tough to thread the needle on? It's pretty hot, and it has been for a while. It's, it, it, I don't think in the absence of, like, a local health department bill does the, does the citing bill uh, have a better shot this session. Um, but, but this has got to be figured out. I mean, the market has already gone there. Uh, we see incumbent coal, you know, uh, uh, energy companies that have been uh, producing energy with, with coal move to renewables, and they're repurposing workforces and they're repurposing facilities. The, it can be an economic engine for a community, not a, not a detriment where the, the, um, the plant's closing. Uh, and we don't live on an island from, a, from an energy standpoint. It's not, you don't produce the energy that your community consumes, and that's the end of it. I mean, there's a wholesale energy market. So if, whether, you're make, whether you're producing renewable energy in the state or not, we're, we're going to use it because it's just going to be produced somewhere else. Um, a lot of people want to be, I mean, you never, you never want these things built in your backyard, but uh, whether it's, you know, we see all these like heated fights on, on 5G and like the creation of cellular networks and putting up cellular towers or putting in solar panels or wind, you know, wind farms. Um, it, it's, it's building the, inter, it's, it's like Eisenhower building the interstate system. You know, you, you had to go, you had to go do it. Uh, you've if you been, want it all to connect. As we've talked about all those local control bills that have been uh, around this session in particular, you've been an advocate for more local control. You, is you this know, extended what's interesting, what's interesting, though, is the hypocrisy of the supermajority of the Republicans. If the local control deals with something progressive like banning plastic bags or regulating firearms or tenants' rights, 
No. It has to be standardized. We saw earlier this week. Yeah, it has to be standardized. It has to be statewide. But if it's something that the right wing of the Republican Party is, is, is in favor of preventing or trying to prevent, it's like holding back the sea. It's coming whether they like it or not. But if they don't want it in their backyard, as Mike says, it, you know, that's okay then for local control. I mean, some of these things are better with statewide control, and some of them are better with local control. I just think that there ought to be an approach that's consistent across progressive and regressive issues. Indiana House lawmakers debated a ban on so-called COVID-19 vaccine passports this week. Republican Representative Brad Barrett, a retired physician, offered an amendment that would bar businesses from asking about a person's vaccination status. It would also stop them from restricting access to a public area of their business without proof of a COVID-19 vaccination. Barrett stresses that the COVID-19 vaccines are only under emergency use authorization, not complete FDA approval. To me, there are just too many holes in that, uh, uh, in the science that would require that kind of personal information. Democratic Representative Robin Shackelford says some businesses, particularly those in the travel industry, should be allowed to ask customers these sorts of questions. I believe that it is their choice. They are a business. They want to keep their customers safe. House Democrats challenged the amendment, successfully blocking even a vote on it using procedural rules. John Schwannis, let's recall something we talked about just a few minutes ago. Was Barrett's case here bolstered by this pause we saw on the Johnson-Johnson vaccination uh, this week? I mean, you could argue that, but I don't think this issue has anything to do with public health or medicine. Uh, I mean, let's, it, I mean, ostensibly does, but let's take that all off the table. This is all about this bigger issue, which we've seen emerge. Uh, I don't know if it's because of the rise of Donald Trump, if it's because of the polarization in Washington, it's because of the tribal nature of politics in America in the 21st century. But the battle against COVID is basically just uh, a, rep- a metaphor for everything else uh, in our political landscape. You know, where, what government can control, what the individual uh, has control over. I mean, this is that debate. And, and I'm, some people, I think you'd ask, you'd ask them and say, which side are you on? And they'd say, well, first, I, before I answer that, I have to know, you know, which is the Republican side of this equation and which is the Democratic side. Once I know that, I can give you an answer. Uh, because I'm not sure there is a good answer uh, from a public health standpoint. Um, well, I mean, there is, but it's not one that's going to be uh, resolved in this kind of forum. Nikki Kelly, uh, what is the likelihood we see something like this before the end of session? Yes, Speaker Houston said on Thursday that they are definitely looking at some language. He was a little noncommittal. He said we would make sure that people understand the vaccine policy of the state but without giving any details. Um, and he mentioned it, that maybe it had been considered or at least been in bills this session, but we've had nothing. We've only had one bill that even had a hearing and no vote. So none of this language has passed either chamber. And it wasn't. It was about companies requiring employees to get the vaccine, which this was about, you know, if I want to go see a Pacers game, can they make me show proof that I got vaccinated? So it sounds like we might definitely see language in the last week, but I'm I'm not exactly sure which route they're going with. Is there, what's the right answer on this? The right answer. (laughs) You know, I I believe in medicine, okay, And, and I believe in facts. And the facts are that if people are vaccinated and out in groups, everybody in the group is safer. 
okay? And people that are in that group have a right to know whether other people there sitting next to them at the Pacer game or at the 500 or whatever are vaccinated. And I don't think that's a lot to ask. If they don't want to get vaccinated, that's fine. That's their choice. Stay home. Does this bump up a little between what's traditionally a, a conservative Republican idea of the private sector gets to decide what it wants to do? Does this bump up against that idea? Always. <laughs> it always does. I think if you reframe this conversation a little bit in terms of the Wall Street Journal had a good, had a thoughtful, I thought, op-ed this week on this that raised some things I hadn't thought of. And if you reframe it as, um, instead of like, it's, this is about go, getting into a restaurant and half-price half margarita night, right? It's like, what if, what if you're never allowed again because we can't get control of this uh, virus to go be with a loved one when they're, when they're dying or go into a nursing home or be in the, be in the waiting room when someone's having, um, having surgery or, you know, get, you know give the, take rights away from an employer to, to be able to, you know, get a job because they don't want to put this, you know, the rest of their employees at risk. Um, the debates become very primitive on basketball games and, and restaurants when in reality it's, it's, it's allowing you to do things that are kind of critical and the, the things that are the hardest to let go of and, and not do in the last year haven't been go, to, go and sit at a bar. It's been being in a hospital when someone's, when someone's dying. And a, va- and a vaccine passport, is, it, it's, it's, I don't know, if we're banning the vaccine passport, why, why not just ban the right to say if you had a headache in the last two weeks or when you walk into a restaurant and they, I go to restaurants where they take my temperature, Ban that if you're, I mean, yeah. don't focus on the vaccine passport, but ban asking also, me if I had a fever. Because it's also a binary choice in, in, a, in a, a circumstance that isn't binary. I could not get the vaccine for reasons beyond wanting to get the vaccine. There could be reasons I can't get it, period. And a vaccine passport doesn't necessarily account for that. So it's hard to well, thread the needle could. on this one in a week, but though. But it could. I mean, there's nothing to say that the passport couldn't say either you were vaccinated or you couldn't take the vaccine yeah. for whatever reason. It's like airport security. It's like I, I, I can go through that line and take everything out of my bag, yeah. or I can go through this line and I've got the pass. Yeah. They already checked yeah. me. Yeah. All right, that's, that's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting stations and by Ice Miller. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.